0: Welcome to season two of EdTech Insiders, where we talk to the most interesting thought leaders, founders, entrepreneurs, educators, and investors driving the future of education technology. I'm your host, Alex Sarlin, an EdTech veteran with over 10 years of experience at top EdTech companies. Dana Bryson is the Senior Vice President of Social Impact at Study.com also known as Study. Dana leads the company's social impact and double bottom line strategy, working to build new mission-aligned partnerships. And she also manages the company's policy and strategic positioning. In the past, Dana has served as Chief of Staff to Oakland Mayor Jerry Brown, Chief of Staff for City Operations for D.C. Mayor Anthony Williams, and as a senior appointee for Denver Mayor John Hickenlooper, More recently, Dana designed and implemented a national leadership program for a 45,000 member organization committed to equity in education leadership. Dana Bryson holds a master's degree in public policy from Harvard University's John F. Kennedy School of Government and a bachelor's in both foreign affairs and French literature from UVA. Dana Bryson, welcome to EdTech Insiders.
1: Thanks, Alex. Happy to be here.
0: It's great to have you here. So first off, I'd like to ask you to talk about your background and how you came into EdTech because you came from a politics and policy background. It's so interesting. You worked for multiple major American cities. You worked for an educational equity nonprofit. Give us a little bit of a history of your journey and how it brought you into the EdTech industry.
1: Well, I guess I'll start by saying I'm a proud graduate of the public school system, a graduate of Denver Public Schools, and really was raised in an activist family. My parents were biracial. My dad is black. My mom is white. They were one of the first legal interracial marriages in the country after Loving versus Virginia, the Supreme Court case that had outlawed interracial marriage. And so I really grew up talking about issues in my family, talking about advocacy. And I think that, and I don't think that, I know that that is the foundation for why I went on to really work in public policy, pursue graduate work in public policy, not only because I wanted to understand how you build the system, but I really wanted to be able to take it apart and reconstruct it. And for me, studying policy was just that intersection of law of community, of business, and all of the ways you need to compromise and work in coalition to get to a great outcome. So that's us. so. For twenty-five years, I've been working at the intersection of technology and policy and urban government, and it's been wonderful. Same issues, different lens.
0: Tell us a little bit about some of this city work. Which cities? What were you doing? And, and what are some of the lessons you brought? EdTech?
1: Well, my first job in city government was as chief of staff for Jerry Brown. And at that point, he was the mayor of Oakland, California. And I was so attracted to what was happening in Oakland because every interesting issue I could think about, whether it was police reform, still relevant today, affordable housing, still relevant today, environmental issues, there we go, right? The city was taking a position and trying to do something in a very nitty gritty practical way. And so I was really exposed to local government through the role of Mayor Brown's chief of staff, which was a thrill, probably maybe more of a story for another time. It was very exciting and then went on to work for John Hickenlooper when he was, he's now a senator, but when he was first mayor of Denver, Colorado, that's my hometown. I was very proud to work there. And then went on to Washington, D.C. to be chief of staff over city operations. So about 32,000 employees and, you know, DC's is a city, a county and a state. So that was complex and exciting. And I loved that work. I really enjoyed it.
0: Yeah. So Oakland, Denver and Washington, D.C., all cities with very complex populations and ecosystems and policies then and now. And then you worked with the leadership for educational equity, which brought you to your current role as the senior vice president of social impact at study.com. Yeah. Let's talk about that role. How did you enter the sort of education technology industry from politics? What is the connective tissue there between that and the politics and policy?
1: Great question. Well, you know, I, this is my fourth technology company that I've worked for, so I do have a background in technology that was sort of interspersed throughout the last 25 years, but really had been working in social impact and trying to look at how do you measure outcomes that are in addition to profit? Profit is a good thing, and it's to be, you know, it's not a bad thing, and there are other metrics, and how do you work together to sort of have a blended value, Right. So that I was introduced to study, really, I wanted to work at study because of our founder, Adrian Ridner. I don't know if you've, Alex, met him or talked to him yet, but he's really got an exceptional story, visionary leader. He came to this country in high school. He emigrated from South America, didn't speak the language. And he talks a lot about trying to fit in and trying to not only socially, but also academically. He's an engineer. And trying to learn, trying to learn in English, trying to, it was the same thing for his family. He has a sibling with special needs who had, was trying to get access to education. So he found, and a partner, Ben Wilson, founded Study in College with the goal of making education accessible. And I can tell you to this day, that's still our North Star. We think about it when we develop products. We think about it when we work in coalitions And so it was really Adrian and the conversations I had with he and Ben about the work they'd already done, which was pretty phenomenal around an affordable college pathway, but really what they had in mind for the future. And so I came on board onto the executive team and said, let's do this. And that was, I don't know, three or four years ago. It's been exciting. So, you know, studied, it's been around two decades. It's still, you know, we're privately held, bootstrapped, no outside investors, doing extremely well, high growth trajectory. And we've learned a lot in those two decades. You know, we have a full academic curriculum for fourth through 12th grade. We've got learners and educators in 10,000 school districts around the country. You know, we've got a couple hundred college level courses in 10 or 12 different degree pathways. And we are very proud that we saved saved learners almost 300 million dollars in college tuition through our college transfer business and working scholars program. In terms of test prep, which I know we're going to talk more about today, we're going to talk about teacher test prep, but we have over 1500 courses in test prep from everything from nursing to teaching to SAT, ACT, and we also offer tutoring. So we have learned yeah. a lot in two decades about what works and how to build viable lines of business, as it were.
0: It strikes me listening to you talk about study.com, I'll, you know, you are recalling calling it study. It is really one of the first major ed tech companies. It was founded, as you said, in 2003, two decades ago in, you know, technology time. That's a long time, mm-hmm. but it's expanded and expanded. You know, you mentioned 10,000 school districts. 30 million people a month, and it's sort of wide range of different types of teaching and product, which is is interesting. I didn't fully understand how many different things were happening on study. So I wanted to again, you've you've mentioned a couple of them, but I want to just ask you about to do a little like whirlwind tour of you know you mentioned fourth through twelfth grade curriculum, you know, and college classes and teaching. But there's a personalized learning platform, there's tutoring, which you, right. you just mentioned, teaching materials, certification, and recently a whole set of different scholarships. Right. Like the Working Scholars program dedicated to this sort of access to college. That's a lot of different products, a lot of different purchasers, a lot of different types of learning. Just give us a little overview of what study is about. It's a yeah. it's an unusual set of products.
1: Well, you know, as I mentioned, we're mission focused organization where our values lead. And so we build all of these products that are focused on how can we increase access to education for those who don't have it. And so whether you are a visual learner, an audio learner, whether you want to read something or watch an animation, we offer through our research has really shown that we need to offer learners all kinds of approaches to learning, but it's all built on one foundational platform. We build everything ourselves. We control our creator network and studio. We have, you know, masters and PhDs in various subjects who create the content. It's highly rigorous and it's state standards aligned, you know, in terms of what school districts need. So I guess I would say, Alex, that because it's built on a common platform, and is stackable in some way, we are able to really provide that personalized piece for learners and educators across the country. And we get great feedback. You know, we're in lots of discussions. A theme of my work is around coalition building. And we just have a lot Mm -hmm. of strong partners who give us feedback about what's working and what isn't working. And we listen.
0: Yeah, that's really important. And I'm sure that's part of why all of these learnings over the last couple of decades have added up to this very, you know, all-consuming content library plus services like tutoring and scholarships and all sorts of social impact work. It's a really, it's a whole study universe. And we're here in January 2023, and there's no shortage of topics. There's a lot going on in ed tech, including teacher shortages student mental health issues, artificial intelligence, of course, college enrollment issues. From your perspective at the helm of social impact at study that touches many different areas of education, what do you think are the biggest challenges in education right now that ed tech can help to solve?
1: Well, certainly you mentioned a couple of them already. And those that you know, whether it's mental health or some of the you know changes with artificial intelligence, absolutely big issues. I think The two I think are really at the top are transparency in terms of learning outcomes Mm -hmm. and equity, equity really serving all learners, not just those in the middle that want to buy things, right? So, you know, with respect to transparency, I'll say we spend a lot of time really looking at the pedagogy and the learning science behind our platform, our courses, and the way that we provide information and testing and quizzing and worksheets and all of that. Because we know that's what our partners need. As I mentioned, we have learners and educators in 10,000 districts around the country, and they're using public funds to buy our products. And as a former public servant who was responsible for stewarding those funds, you know, I take it and our leadership takes it very seriously that those school administrators many of whom you know are our friends are our partners you know their school administrators curriculum heads need to know hey is this state standards aligned is this going to meet the requirements that i have in my district and how do i know what is the pedagogy what is the learning science to that end we recently underwent and got our level 4 esa certification the every student succeeds act and we're um, working our way through level 3 right now to really make sure that we're translating the rigor that we're bringing to our curriculum development into what public servants really need as they are working to make decisions about investments.
0: Yeah, the ESSA leveling and that idea of education outcomes truly being a focus of the ed tech industry, we've talked a lot about on this show, and it's it's really exciting. I'm an instructional designer by background. I care Uh, a lot about advocacy. And it's really neat to hear, you know, companies that have been around a long time say, look, it's not just about procurement. It's not just about marketing. It's about the outcomes. It's about making sure that this works and that it works for all students. That's the equity piece.
1: Exactly. That's the future. That's what I mean, we need to care about what educators care about. And that's what's important. And so we're focused on that. But I agree with you. We're hearing more and more about it. And You know, I'm glad that it's more accessible, I would say, for education technology companies to understand and translate what we're doing and what the standards and the assessments are. And so we're really proud to have that level four certification and hope to be announcing level three soon. Yeah.
0: So in terms of equity and transparency, these are huge issues across education at all levels. You have focused on social impact. You've focused on on educational equity for a long time. What are some of the initiatives that study.com has been doing in service of equity or transparency?
1: Right. Well, you know, I feel, again, it's why I came to work here. You know why it's such a strong place to work is that we are mission and value driven. And so the first thing we do is before we think about a scholarship or giving anything away, we think about our core products they need to be equitable they need to serve all learners before we think about anything else that might be a nice to have and so we ensure that our K12 curriculum in 10,000 districts you know that our college learner program and that our test prep courses are grounded in rigor that have multiple points of entry for different types of learners like english language learners like special needs learners like highly gifted learners so that you can translate our material, you can speed it up, you can slow it down, you can ask for a quiz, right? You can really check for understanding in different ways. And we hear from our various teaching communities like our English language learner coalitions or those around social emotional learning, that it really is helpful to have different points of entry because we know that not all students learn the same way. So that's the first thing I'll say, is that our product is the impact in some ways, or it's the first piece that needs to fit. That's got to be a fit because that's the main, right? Then we look at, and I'll give the example of our working scholars program. This is an example of where we have a college transfer credit, college credit transfer business, where we, as I mentioned, we have about 300 college level courses that tens of thousands of people use every day and they transfer to graduating, you know, like 2000 different universities and we have articulation agreements. So we know that our course is going to equal their course. So students don't get smashed in the middle of that doesn't count. Right. So Mm -hmm. this is prior to me to my, to me coming our, our founders and other leaders at the company identified, you know, the comebackers, right. The 37 million folks with some college credit and no degree and said, Let's use the backbone of this college credit transfer program and create, we actually created a nonprofit and it's called the Working Scholars Fund. And it has, you know, it's a debt-free, no-cost college degree. And we, we actually raised money. We donate the software and we raised money from other tech companies to pay for the fourth year. And the way it works is that you take your first up to 90 credits on study.com and we cover that cost. And we cover the cost of counselors and success coaches. And we've got great data about what works and yeah. very high efficacy in the program. And then we raised money to pay for the fourth year at a regionally accredited nonprofit university like Thomas Edison State. Many folks graduate from there. Just had our fourth graduation. We graduated our 150th graduate. There are 68 percent of the folks in the program are women, identify as women. identify as a person of color and 74% of the graduates are the first in their family to go to college. And that is, you know, just for the team at study, for all of us at study, we're just so proud. It really is. We're so proud to have this program that continues and to know that the work that we're doing can make a difference, especially in for first generation college graduates. So that's an example of where we're using the products we have and turning them into something that really can serve others.
0: Yeah, it strikes me as I hear you talk about the working scholars program that it's there's sort of a third problem that you're addressing here which is the college dropout problem, the rising costs of tuition, the fact that there's so little support and coaching and mentoring for many of the students who get sort of lost in the higher education system exactly. and it's it's exciting to hear that you know, I hear sort of embedded in what you're saying that study.com has a tutoring arm, but much of its business is is really content driven. But this particular product or this particular nonprofit marries the content to this sort of higher touch coaching and mentoring to really, really drive outcomes. And that's something we've sort of seen over and over again in the in the university at you know, space is that content is necessary but not sufficient to get people the line.
1: That's exactly right. And we're really working with the two at the same time, right? Whether it's with the Working Scholars Program and knowing what the success coaches need. I mean, we ask for, you know, two people we can call when you don't pass your second quiz. Okay. I mean, it is really a commitment. And we know that those cohorts work, that that peer support network works. And so, yeah. Yeah. Feels good to have that program and to know that that and our college transfer business has contributed to two hundred and eighty yeah. million dollars in savings. You know that's that's great.
0: Yeah, exactly. Changing, right. right. Yeah, sort of being able to offer lower cost materials that. Saves a bunch of money for students and then combine that with peer networks and mentoring really is a way to sort of move the needle for equity and for outcomes. We've talked a couple of times about how study is really been around the block quite a few times, but it's really unusual. I tell you, I don't know if I've ever talked to anyone from a company that's more than, you know, 10 or 15 years Old And it's really exciting because I think that, you know, we're in a a moment where there are so many people coming into the ed tech industry, there's so many people founding new companies or, you know, pivoting their companies or figuring out how to break into this, this field that's been growing very quickly, you know, triple the funding last year as the year before. I'd love to ask you, you know, you've mentioned a a lot of really great things from study, but what would you say to somebody who's sort of entering the ed tech world now? What are some of the takeaways that you've learned from your career in educational equity and from study about how new ed tech founders might, you know, do, as they say, do well by doing
1: good? Great question. The word that comes to mind is coalition or coalition Mm -hmm. building. Because, you know, we are not working in widgets here. We're working in education. It's a public good. It's a right. I believe it's a fundamental right. And in this country, there are, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars put into funding education technology, right? We need to work in coalition to make sure that we are solving the right problem, I think in ed tech and in my, here in my fourth tech company, I can say we can become very impressed with our business models and our product <laughs> suites and our bells and whistles. And they are important. The business model matters. But for long-term success and something as important as educating the folks around the world and also in this country, and we do both, We really need to look at a longer term, longer term relationships with those who have the same vested interest, and so that means for us. And I'll talk about our keys to the classroom program in a minute. But I, I think you might have had a question about that around our teacher pipeline. But that means slowing down, and we don't like to go slow, right? We want to go fast. We want to scale. We want to get it out there. And what I'll say is that yes. We want to scale. Scaling is excellent. Scaling is one of the reasons I want to do this work in technology versus someplace else, because we can get big and we can go fast. We have to be very precise that it's the right thing. And the right thing can only really be arrived at through those coalitions where you hear the perspective on the problem from multiple sources. And you know this from your work in instructional design, right? What you're designing is only as good as the ideas and the mindset of the people in the room imagining what the problem is, right? So that's what I would say is look out and look across to partners, to nonprofits, to state agency leaders, to, to principals, to parent advocates, and ask the same questions you'd ask of your team of those folks and build a relationship so that you can get honest feedback and you'll you'll build a better, you'll build a stronger product that really helps, you know, achieve outcomes. That's been my experience. That's what we're seeing happen here at Study. And that would be my challenge to other of my colleagues in education technology.
0: I love that advice. And I think, you know, I've talked to some startup founders who feel like they're building coalitions because they connect with other startup founders or with investors. But I think it's really important, you know, the, the part of your advice that says, go talk to nonprofits, go talk to educators, go talk to people who've worked in education policy. Don't limit your set of, of experiences and views just to your own perspective or people like you. Absolutely. And I think that's a really, really nice message. I haven't heard people talk about that before. So, you know, you mentioned the Keys to the Classroom program. I definitely do want to ask you about it. As we go into that idea, one of the things that we've talked about a lot on this podcast when it comes to K-12 is that we're in a time of enormous teacher shortages, especially for special needs and particular subjects, math and science subjects. And you mentioned something earlier that stuck with me, which is that you know, our problems are the educators' problems, or I think you said it the other way around. The, yeah. What the educators need to deal with is what we need to deal with. Right. So yeah. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about the teacher shortage. What has it felt like from studies' perspective? And what are you starting to do to try to address it?
1: So on the teacher shortage, I'll say this. One of the biggest barriers to becoming a teacher is passing the certification exam. And as you and your listeners probably know, there are, Praxis is the, is the most commonly used national teacher certification exam, but some states have their own, like Texas, Florida, California. There's the core, which is math and science and, and the things that, like that. And then there's your subject area, and you need to pass them both. Fifty percent of the people who take this national exam fail the first time, and 25 percent never pass. So when you think about a young person coming up and seeing teachers and, and really holding them in this position of value and deciding that you want you know they wanted to be a teacher, going to get a bachelor's degree in studying education or whatever the subject might be, sometimes going to get a master's degree. You've gone mm-hmm. through all of that. You go to take your certification exam and you don't pass. And I want to tell you some alarming national pass rates. Please. Black African-American teacher candidates pass the national exam at 38%. Wow. Post-bachelor, sometimes post-master's degree. Hispanic, Latinx identified, 57%. And for white Anglo, it's in the low 70s, around 72 So those are the pass rates after your bachelor's, sometimes after your master's. And so there is this discrepancy in the pass rates is really alarming. And I will say the reason we as an executive team really started coalescing and talking about these issues was because we were, you know, we're focused on student success. And we know, and there's great, you know, new data out of UNC Chapel Hill and Harvard that connects teacher diversity to student success. And so we know that there's higher achievement gains, higher expectations of graduation and higher self-esteem self-reported by students when you have a same race, ethnicity teacher, just to name a few. And so we really believe we need to support more diverse educators in the classroom with both getting into the classroom and also with retention, which is a problem. You know, I think I've seen and checked again this morning, some of the recent in the last 12 months, recent studies around teachers, current teachers and their plan to leave in the next two years. Alex, it's not good. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's higher than 50% of teachers are very likely or somewhat likely to leave in the next two years. And I think about what if that were airline pilots? What if that were (laughs) cardiothoracic surgeons? We would be doing something very different if we saw that data and said half of our airline pilots plan to leave in the next two years, right? So we take it really seriously. So I think that work on both recruitment and also retention. And there are a lot of great great organizations working on these issues.
0: So one of the partners that you've been working with is the New Teacher Project, which is a incredibly educator-led nonprofit that has received a lot of philanthropic money and you're providing basically scholarships to help aspiring teachers pass these certification exams including the praxis. That's a it's a really Nuanced and interesting way to address this teacher shortage problem. I think I admire the thinking. it clearly comes from knowing the details of how this whole system works. Tell us a little bit about you know what inspired this particular approach of being able to provide preparation for the certification to make it easier for teachers to enter the profession in light of that 50% people leaving and not enough diversification and all of those big problems.
1: Right, well, you know, we, you know, as an executive team and with Adrian and Ben really got together to say, you know, why is it that these pass rates are so low, right? Because we know if the ultimate measure is what's happening for students, and for us it really is, How are our learners achieving their goals? How are our students succeeding? We know that we're going to need to do our part as an education technology company to support what we see as a problem. And we looked at across our, you know, we we know that we have, you know, 92 really high pass rates for people who self-report in taking our, using our test prep materials for the teacher test prep. And Mm -hmm. so we really got in a design lab as a leadership team and designed an initiative that where we could donate our licenses, our test prep materials to help future educators prepare for and pass their exams. And we, you know, we didn't know if it would work, right. But it was a design charrette. It was some policy and some business and some community. And we, started talking to partners and there was really a lot of interest and a lot of Mm. interest. So now, Alex, we have 25 partners in 20 states. So the New Teacher Project is the newest partner and we love them. And I've been following their work for years. And I love that we're in five sites with them across 400 teacher candidates. But we have donated 6,000 licenses to date through our Keys to the Classroom program, which is about $4 million of in-kind donation. 60% of the teacher cadets in our partners' programs, inside of our programs, are first-generation college students. And 50%, and this I have to say it twice, 50% identify as people of color. So right now, I believe that 7% of teachers nationally, it's hard to, the number, people disagree on the number, but 7% identify as black, African-American in our Keys to the Classroom National Program, 35% of the participants identify as Black African-American. And so we know, and we're just a year into this, so we're thrilled about where we could take this. And what we're finding, back to the piece on Coalition building, is that there's so much excitement and energy inside of our 25 partners that, that we're coming together to look at sharing of success, sharing of models. Sharing of surveys to pull data about what's working, and so that's a lot of fun. And I've got—if we've got time—I can tell you about some of the various partners. But
0: yeah, I would love to hear more. I feel like a theme of this conversation is that what Study is doing is about like ten times more than I realize, and that I think a lot of people realize. So I thought it was four hundred teachers. You're like, nope, six thousand. That's amazing, and. I would love to hear a little bit more about some of the other partners that you're doing this with, you say, 25 partners around the country. As you talk about that, I'd love to push you on one thing and ask you. So you've mentioned this coalition building and this idea of partnering with people outside of your particular ecosystem, people with different viewpoints. And I feel like what you're doing with this scholarship program is sort of exactly that. You know, study is a is an ed tech company, but it's partnering with 25 different, you know, nonprofits and teacher, you know, education partners to bring its materials to exactly the people who need them most. And I'd love to hear you sort of translate, if possible, that kind of thinking that when you say our leadership team got together to figure out how we could help, you know. We have a lot of listeners to this to this podcast who come from you know big ed tech companies from very new and small ed tech companies, but this is a really inspiring program because it sort of uses the best of what each side brings to the table. Yeah, Uh, you you mentioned we have test prep materials that have very high pass rates, and there's this huge problem where teachers have very low pass rates. So put it together and find partners. And we've seen that with Coursera and and Google and all the nonprofit partners they go with. We've seen it a few times, but not that many. So I'd love to hear you talk about some of your partners and how to get a program like this off the ground, how to sort of conceive.
1: Great. So let me just talk about a couple of the partners and then I can talk about my, you know, the approach that we bring to this and we bring for new initiatives that are in development now maybe I'll be back next year. As I mentioned, so we partner with and donate licenses to state agencies, educator prep programs, alternative licensure programs, so where people are coming up through a non-traditional pathway, to teacher cadet programs, programs that are working on high school students to try to get them excited about being teachers, and to some very small residency programs. And what I'll say is that and we believe strongly in collecting information about what's working. And when we start our discussions on a partnership, we we align on that, that we want to know that this is, this is for the good of the whole, that we want to share information about what's working and we want them to share it with our coalition of partners, which is exactly what's happening. In South Carolina, where some very kind people live, We're partnering with SARA, Center for Educator Retention, Recruitment, and Development. It's a nonprofit that quasi-state agency. It has a charter from the state to do the educator prep program in the state. We've donated 600 licenses there, and they have incredible leadership. They have a teacher cadet program that's focused on high school students, as I mentioned, where they expose the high school students to the test prep material in high school and particularly high school students that are interested in attending historically Black colleges and universities or an HBCU in South Carolina. In Clark County, Nevada, fifth largest school district in the country, Las Vegas, Nevada, through a partnership they have with the Public Education Foundation, so it's an education foundation raising money for schools in Nevada, they identified 2,000 paraprofessionals or teacher's aides. basically a teacher aid type of role inside of Clark County who are interested in becoming teachers. So they work to partner with UNLV, University of Nevada, Las Vegas. And we're part of that partnership to have an accelerated bachelor's program, one year bachelor's and credential in a year for the current paraprofessionals who are working in Clark County, financial support, academic support, test prep support, and they know their data collection has been is the model, as far as I'm concerned, what they created. They know down to the individual who's interested, if they've taken the test, what the issue has been, when they've retaken it, for everybody who's interested in that system. And what is so compelling for me about this is one, that it's so data-driven that you can't argue with it and you can share the, the data set and the survey tool and which other partners are interested in. But because Clark County, Nevada, has an 80% identified persons of color student body, and para pros in Clark County exactly mirror that racial ethnic identity. So 80% of the paraprofessionals, the teachers aid working in Clark County, you know, identify as a person of color. It's a grow your own program. They're already living there. They have experience in the district. Their, they own homes. Their families are there. This is what we want in terms of bringing in teachers who are going to stay in the community. I'm excited about the stuff I could talk about more. In Vermont, we have a union-led program, which has been really exciting to be working with the Vermont NEA and the Agency of Education in Vermont. They're really forward-thinking there. And so that is, I know you asked me a question about what I would say to other ed tech folks looking to do this but when I just said Vermont and I thought of a quick story if we have time I just love to say because this is a, a recipient of our you know test prep materials in Vermont who wrote to us so this woman was a came to the states a decade ago with her husband who was a dentist in Syria they came here seeking political asylum Her husband's dental credential didn't transfer here. A big problem that we know about, right? So he started working one or two jobs while she decided I'll be a teacher because that's a good job. We can afford to raise our family on that. Went back to school, finished her bachelor's. Twice she tried to take her teacher certification exam. She was close. She was six points away. She threw... Other interventions, including study, you know, the donation of this license, she passed her exam. She's a teacher in the classroom, making a very good salary in Northern Virginia, her husband's back, finishing his dental credential and going on to be a dentist. And Mm -hmm. we, we think about the macro, you know, what are the big numbers? What are the trends? But that's where it really matters. You know, when you hear an individual story like that, you know, and hopefully, you know, 6,000 of them in the next couple of years, right?
0: One of the moments that I remember really well at Coursera was during the Syrian crisis, there was a sort of homegrown idea inside the company that was this idea of, why don't we try to provide Coursera for, for refugees? There was this huge refugee crisis. And I remember there being this sort of moment where it was like, well, this is certainly not our core business. It's certainly not you know, relevant to a lot of the, the, the current product lines, but it's so mission aligned. It's about access. It's made so much sense. And a few people within the company said, you know, let's just make this happen. Let's make it work. And they had and they did it through partnerships. They did it by talking to all of these amazing agencies that were helping refugees. So the point here, combined with these amazing stories you're telling us about Las Vegas and Vermont, is you know you can really get a lot done if you go together as they say right if you find people with complementary skill sets complementary sets of reach you know you can do amazing things but i don't think a lot of it tech companies sort of instinctively go there i think they think we do this so we're looking for people who who want to you know buy this hmm. versus we do this what could we do as part of a coalition to do something amazing. And I'd love to hear you just, I know it's a very abstract topic, but how do you think about it as somebody coming from, from policy? And what would you recommend? I mean, they, should they hire a social impact vice president? Should they be talking to nonprofits about what they need? What, what would be some first steps to get this kind of initiative off the ground?
1: Check in on your values. What are your values? And are they real? Do you live them? Does your team experience that this is what's important to you? And leadership matters. You know, this is coming. Our founders believe in this and are supporting it and are believing in these connections that they they have seen pay off and know will pay off. And it is, you know, if you want to go fast, go it alone. But if you want to get the result, you work in partnership, you work in coalition and that, I guess that would be my advice is that it doesn't have to be complicated. And yeah. I think there's a sense that it's got to cost a lot of money. No, on the contrary. In fact, you know, 20 something, I'm dating myself, but 20 something years ago, I was in graduate school and I took a class called business leadership it was a Harvard business school. I, took a class, I, w- I went to the Kennedy school but I took many classes at the business school because I was interested in the cutting edge of what was, what is now called social impact wasn't then. And in this class called Business Leadership in the Social Sector, my primary takeaway, my primary takeaway is play to your strength. Mm-hmm. Think about your core competencies, what you know to be true, what you're really good at, And then figure out who needs that, who knows about it, who could give feedback. And it can be the scale is really not important. It's Mm. that you believe it's important enough to make it a priority. And you will I mean, our team at study, you know, it's. We have a lot of interest in folks working at, at study because of our values, you know? Not bad. And I, so I would say it's not about study here. It's really about, I think if you were to say, what is the model? And I've done this as a funder, as a nonprofit leader, and I've sat in all kinds of roles looking at this. Play to your strengths. What is it that you really know about? Just be a little slice. We need all the little slices together And so I'd love to see this kind of work around English language learners. I'd love to see this type of innovation around mental health. I'd love to see AI take a look at, is there bias in testing that we could, you know, solve for? I'd love to challenge. And a lot of great people are also doing this work. I mean, studies, a lot of other organizations are working on this. We just, it's at the center for us. And I think because of, you know how we're led and who's leading our culture.
0: Yeah, culture leadership, live your values. I love your point about you know if everybody brings what they're good at that little slice about what right. their expertise is, you end up with a with a huge pie. You end up with something that you know has never been done before, right? So I'm going to take a quick right turn in this conversation. We're almost at the end of our time. And I have to ask about something. This feels like such a pivot going from these deep, meaningful, you know, coalitions to something very buzzy. But, you know, Study.com just put out a survey where they surveyed, I think it's 100 teachers and a 1,000 students about chat GPT, which is on everybody's mind in January of 2023. And some of the findings were super interesting. So I just wanted to highlight a few of the findings that he got, you know, found and hear your thoughts on them. Can we do a little bit of that just as we end the conversation? No, I
1: love it. We're so curious about this. This is, that's why we did the survey. So yeah, let's let's talk about what it says, because some of it I understand and some of it I need more information.
0: Totally. Okay. So first off, let's talk about awareness. I thought this was really interesting because ChatGPT is very new and it's it's in lots of news. You know, all the tech people know about it. Right. But I think there's a question about, is it making its way into classrooms and colleges and schools? And you found that 90% of the students you surveyed are aware of the program, but not only are aware of ChatGPT, not only that, 89% are already using it for homework. So that is, you know, out of a hundred, out of a thousand students, 89% are already using it for homework. I think it's been out for about two months. And then meanwhile, 82% of college professors know about it, which is higher than I would have expected, certainly, but only 55% of of K-12 grade school teachers know about it. So you have 90% of kids using it and only half of the teachers even knowing what it is. What should we make of that? (laughs)
1: Well, I would say these college students are early adopters, so that's interesting. You know, yeah. I think this is why we commissioned this study that's gotten picked up, and we're going to continue to want more information about what this means. It's a tidal wave. It's a tsunami. I mean, this is this is a major weather event for learning. It is, and it's here. And so when we think about artificial intelligence, you know, we sort of know what it is and sort of know what it means. And all of a sudden this is like, boom, chat GPT, boom, there it is. It's like, it's here. I say, you know, I think we need to be very, very curious. I think there's a instinct to be afraid and think it's bad and think it's different and it's wrong and cheating. And ah, I actually think we need to be very curious about what this could be. Because I think that our tendency, myself included, to react and think, oh, my God, 90 percent of students are using this. And, but really, you know, if we had an open mind about what it could be, what could it be? Right. I am very curious to we, and we are at study very curious to continue learning, especially with some of the data that came out of this first survey to dig deeper, especially with college students where 72% of college students believe that chat GPT should be banned from their college's network. I don't know what conclusion to form on that. The first one Mm -hmm. I have is, you know, integrity, right? Students, you know, know what's fair and they don't, they want to feel like they've earned something, but I don't know that. And that's where we're, we're curious. And many of our, you know, we have many university partners and obviously a lot of Folks, we're working with, and so we're continuing to get curious with them about it. I do think we need to listen to the educators on this one. I do think student perspectives are important, but I think continuing to probe educators, I think, as you mentioned, Alex, this is so new that it's like it's washed ashore, and you know, it's washed ashore and it's here, and so. There will be a new normal, and I spoke with you know some teachers recently about this. You know, we do various focus groups, etc. And and I spoke with some teachers about this. They had it now, they were younger, right? Yeah, they taught younger students, so they were high school, but they had an interesting take on it. They said, Well, now we'll really be able, maybe there's a way that we check for understanding in a different way, maybe there's more interaction that is required or there's more small group interaction. And maybe, you know, this was a small group. This is not a, this is not the sample that we, that we did for the what you're talking about in the wall street journal. But I guess I think many of us who are working at the intersection of education and technology are really looking for something's broken right in the system. And so let's see what this can bring. I don't know what it means, but we're going to continue to be curious and find out. Just
0: to be clear on my personal perspective, I am not the least, I am very anti all of this concern about integrity. Mm. And it's it's really interesting. Some of the other findings in this were that about 48% of the students have admitted to using ChatGPT for an at-home test or quiz, which you could kind of read as a, right. as a cheat. 53% have used it to write an essay, have used it to write a paper. That said, that point you made about, you know, the educators who are saying, okay, new tool is here. We've got to up our game. We've got to think about how to do things differently. I think that's incredibly true. And I've been so, I've been personally disappointed seeing that, you know, New York and LA and all these large school districts have sort of done this knee-jerk ban. Right. Because I just think that they're really missing the forest for the trees thinking that this is a cheating issue and not a you know change in the capacity for human intelligence issue.
1: Right, exactly. Exactly. I mean, this is a little off topic but this happened in our kitchen last week where our daughter who's 10, Zaya was sort of she's in 5th grade public school pretending to do her homework and out of the <laughs> blue she looked up at me and said, will there be schools? in the year 2050, I said, excuse me? She said, mom, will, will we have schools in the year 2050? It's like completely out of the blue. And I said, well, why did you ask? And she said, well, all the information that we need, not that we need, we can get all the information other places, long pause. And I said, okay, talk to me about the role of the teacher. And I said, What would you say is the role of the teacher? And I, I wrote it down. I wish I had it at my fingertips. It was so beautiful. It was like, you know, a, a trusted guide to support students academically and mentally. That's what it was a trusted guide to support students academically and mentally. I love that. Boom, right? And she got it. And so I said, Okay, great. And I said, Well, what would it mean if we if we didn't have teachers? And her response, 10 years old, was, well, there'd be a lot of students who wouldn't have a trusted adult. And I just thought that was so profound because, you know, we're thinking of the content knowledge and the academic rigor and all of these things when I had a 10-year-old talking about academic and mental support and a trusted adult. And really, I think... If we think of teachers that way, educators that way, you know, maybe we don't worry so much about chat GPT because they can show a lot in, you know, maybe we do, right? But maybe we don't because maybe educators can have more time to be a trusted.
0: Exactly. I mean, that is a beautiful story. And I'm really, it's so nice to hear the thoughtful, both the sort of speculative ideas are, you know, does this mean schools are, are doomed? And then this sort of realization, well, actually, educators really play a pretty important role. It's not just about telling you the capital of, uh, you know, Zimbabwe. It's telling, it's, it's guiding you through your educational and social emotional life. I love that. And, you know, I don't know. I could wax poetic on this all day. So this will be my last comment. But it feels like, you know, when the, when the internet, when search engines first came out, there was a lot of hand about the same thing. They said, wait, you can't send a kid home asking them to find, you know, the state bird of all 50 states anymore because they could just Google it. Right. And it's like, yeah, that was a terrible assignment. Right. Like that, right. And I think this thing is happening here. It's like, you can now send kids home asking them to solve major problems and they can use artificial intelligence to help them solve it. That is incredible. Yes, is. I just think as educators, we can, you know, this is an exponential you know, moment for what education could be. So I hope that your daughter's vision of teachers becoming that trusted guide and information becoming just the cloud, you know, right. we all live in, live in a world of easy information.
1: That's not the point. It was point for us or for me and others, but now it's you don't need to memorize a bunch of stuff. You've got it. So what are you going to do with it? And maybe how are you going to how are you going to work in community with it? Right. How are you going to really use it as a common foundation and then go to the next level with the learning in whatever context, whether it's business or or school, etc.?
0: Exactly. And it it was nice to see in your survey that also educators were starting to think about how to use it for for, for creating lesson plans, for digital tutoring, for providing writing prompts. Really, really interesting findings. We're a little at time here. These subjects are so interesting. I want to ask you the questions I end every interview with. First, what is a trend that you see in the ed tech landscape that you think our listeners should keep an eye on?
1: I would say two. The first is around evidence. And we spoke about this earlier, but I know that we as education technologists and education leaders need to show what is behind our work, what's the efficacy of it, and how does it align with what the expectations are for learning in the state, in each state. And so, you know, I would say evidence is the first. I'll just, I'll stick with evidence.
0: I'm curious about the other one you were thinking about. You just could give the short version.
1: I would say you and I talked earlier about having products that have a transactional component to them. So here's a, you know, take our test, come to the website, look at our, our quizzes and, and skills support, et cetera. And what we're really knowing is that it's, we need it to be personalized and we need we need a human touch to what we're doing. And so, what I'm really seeing as a trend, and I know that we're focused on, is this combination of scale and fast and access for lots of folks, if that's what they need and want, and tutoring support, personalized support, coaching support, academic coach, you know, academic, I'm like through the Working Scholars Program, you know, so that there is something for all kinds of learners. And I think what I really experienced in ed tech five years ago was that it was all about the volume and the just get it out into the ether. And I think we're becoming a bit more thoughtful to really look at how do you also provide, just because it's technology doesn't mean there can't be a human, right? So that's Oops. what I would say. Evidence and then sort of the technology with the, you know, with the human, the human interaction so that you can so that learners can can achieve their goals.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me.
1: <laughs> you pulled it out of me.
0: <laughs> I really agree. That combination is is huge. Yeah. If you can get the great content and then that human touch, that trusted guide to help you yeah. through it, to provide motivation, accountability, personalization, relevance, it's sort of an unstoppable right. combination. And what is a resource that you might recommend to our listeners? That could be a book, a book, podcast, a newsletter, a blog, anything that is a go-to for you that you would recommend for anybody who wants to learn more about any of the topics we talked about today. That's you know, teacher certification, that's AI, that's huge content libraries and alternative credentialing. Where would you send our listeners?
1: I'd send them two places. The first is to a podcast actually called Pod Save the People by Kaya Henderson. I don't know if our listeners, many of you may know who she is. She's Phenomenal leader, former chancellor of D.C. public schools, now running Reconstruction. Really interesting podcast that Kaya has. And the second is a book. And I wish that listeners could see me hold up this dirty, dog-eared book, which is called Teacher Diversity and Student Success, Why Racial Representation Matters in the Classroom by a couple PhDs out of Harvard and Dr. Constance Lindsay out of North Carolina that really draws the empirical, the historical context and the empirical data around the connection between teacher diversity and student outcomes. And I think that every ed tech leader in this country ought to have a copy of this book or at least the cliff notes and understand what it says. So that's what I would say. Pod Save the People and this book.
0: Awesome. Fantastic recommendations. Never heard either of those before on the podcast. And I have never read that book. I'm very curious about it. Okay. Yeah. Thank you so much. We've covered a lot of ground today. I really appreciate you being here with us. Dana Bryson, who is the Senior Vice President of Social Impact at Study. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for listening to this episode of EdTech Insiders. If you like the podcast, remember to rate it and share it with others in the EdTech community. For those who want even more EdTech Insider, subscribe to the free EdTech Insider's newsletter
1: on Substack.